DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm starting a brand new week and very happy to have all of you uh, with us for the show today. Let me get right to introducing uh, the panel. Patricia Murphy, a political reporter and columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Patricia's column is in the Wednesday and Sunday newspaper. And of course, she oversees the jolt, which appears at AJC.com. Great roundup of the day's political news uh, for you to read. Uh, how are you, Patricia? I'm doing great. How are you, Bill? I'm fine. I'm fine. I I got up this morning. I went on our back porch. It's cool. It's brisk. It's just, I love this weather, Patricia. <laughs> and it must be election season. I feel like once there's like that, yeah. that crisp in the air, it's time for a debate. That's how my brain works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt, Kurt Young is with us. Kurt Young, uh, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. Uh, Kurt, how are you? I'm doing great, Bill. Like you, I enjoy this time of year, especially here in Georgia. And I'm um, looking forward to an exciting week and glad to start it off with you and, and your guest this morning. Yeah, we're very happy to have you here. And we're also happy to have Senator Sonia Halpern, Democrat uh, from Atlanta, back on the show. It's been a while, but it's really good to have you back on, Sonia. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It has. It's been a while, so I always love in, in being able to be in conversation with you. And fall yeah, is my favorite time of year, so I am looking forward to the continuing cooler temperatures. Yeah, <laughs> I got you. Edward Lindsay is back with us. Of course, Edward's a former Republican uh, member of the House, leadership member of the House uh, in his day. Now, he runs the Georgia practice, the Georgia government re- relations practice at Edward Denton's, the world's largest law firm. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. And uh, Patricia, I'm reading the jolt right now to make sure that I'm up to date before we start. Good. We yeah, there's some good items. Until, until you read it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, Patricia, I think I, I'd like to start today um, looking again, as we have on other days, but there are developments on abortion and the kind of role it is likely to play uh, in the midterm elections this year. Uh, one of the reasons it's uh, particularly interesting, I think, today is we see this steady march of conservative states moving toward uh, outlawing or restricting uh, in very severe ways abortion and the most recent state, Arizona, where a judge ruled that a law passed in 1864, which uh, was before Arizona was even a state, that bars abortion except to save the life of a pregnant woman, um, in fact, is has been reinstated. It was uh, uh, blocked in, back in 1973 when it was found to be unconstitutional by an Arizona court. And, and then, of course, Roe v. Wade kept it from being uh, activated. But, Patricia, there are pro-choice people who think 1864, a law passed before this was even a state, 
just another reason that pro-choice forces feel that abortion is going to motivate a lot of uh, uh, people to turn out for the polls. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, Democrats <clears throat> in Georgia really believe that this is the animating issue for their voters um, when it comes to who they're going to support in the fall. Um, they believe that uh, because it is just at such a historic inflection point for the issue, that it will play a much larger role than it has in the past, even among voters who are typically um, pro-choice. Now, Republicans just don't agree with that. They, I talk to all Republican campaigns um, all the time and say, I just don't quite understand why abortion is not showing up if it is supposed to be this big issue that people are going to be voting on. And it's logical that especially women um, who are pro-choice would vote on that issue because of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. But Republicans say, listen, um, the economy, jobs, inflation in particular, that is what they see motivating the majority of Georgia voters. They also say that Governor Kemp, um, that his approval rating, this is already baked into his approval rating, in their opinion, because that law passed in 2019 and the governor signed it in 2019. The difference in the legal status of Roe v. Wade, they say, doesn't change the way voters are factoring this issue into the election because they've already made the calculation that they that he signed that law and they like him anyway or for pro-life people they sign he signed that law and that's why they like him even more now democratic candidates i talked to somebody like senator halperin say this just does not comport with what they're seeing and hearing on the ground um but i think we just don't know what role it's going to play that's that's the reality <laughs> patricia before i bring everybody else in Let's talk briefly about the column that uh, you wrote or that appeared in the paper over the weekend. You were up in Cleveland, Georgia, where you met with his June. Is it Christ? Is that how she pronounces her last name? Yes. Democratic candidate for the state house in a red district. She is running. She said she told you that she had had health care was going to be the top issue in her campaign. But you report that uh, in the aftermath of the Roe decision by uh, the Supreme Court, that that has become the dominant issue in her race. And she also told you that she really, because it's a red district, doesn't expect to win um, against uh, Stan Gunter, the incumbent. But she feels that by taking on this issue, it might move the needle a little bit more towards Stacey Abrams. Have I got that right? Yes, and that's what Stacey Abrams really needs to happen, is to close the margins with Republicans, even in these very, very red counties. Donald Trump won White County with 83% of the vote. (laughs) I mean, Democrats are just not going to win there. But um, June Chris and Democrats up there say, could they narrow that with the abortion issue, Um, even among some Republican women voters, could they narrow that to... 81%, 79%. um, And uh, they, they believe that's not, they they think that's possibly also think it's really Stacey Abrams only hope right now that there are unlikely voters out there, not just the likely voters being polled, but the unlikely voters who will come out and vote on this abortion issue. Um, Stacey Abrams needs to close those margins along with bringing out her own democratic base in November, and the, the but the polls are really showing it's a it's a it's going to be a real heavy lift. Uh, Sonia Halpern, l- l- let me get you in uh, 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 next on this. Um, 
This, in the polling that the AJC did, abortion did not rank very high on the list of priorities that voters told the pollsters they were going to vote on. But what that Cleveland, Georgia uh, story tells us is that you may not need a a, a large number of people who are motivated by abortion as an issue, just enough to, again, move the needle toward the Democratic candidates. Yes? Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, at the end of the day, Georgia is, you know, as much of a 50-50 state, right, or at least trending that way. We'll see what happens when we get out of the 22 election cycle. But for sure, um, this election will likely be won in the margins. So these aren't going to be, you know, wide numbers that separate candidates. Um, And so if that's the case, then it really is about trying to find voters where you can find them, including in counties or parts of the state that don't historically think of as Democratic strongholds, because at the end of the day, it really is about connecting with voters throughout the state. If you're going to be a statewide candidate or even district level, it's it's connecting to constituents. And so... Going to other places around the state, talking to women, making sure that people understand what is on the ballot and it and abortions on the ballot as much as health care generally is. Because for folks like me who are Democrats, we say abortion is health care. So it, it also creates the pathway for other kinds of conversations that are important for Georgians to at least consider. Edward? Yeah, if I made sort of three quick points. One is that uh, the it is going to be interesting, uh, as, as Patricia and, and you pointed out earlier, as to whether or not um, the abortion issue actually moves the needle in terms of folks who might otherwise vote Republican would vote Democrat. Uh, you know, this is uh, this. There's a long history in, in the United States going back to the prohibition movement, for instance, uh, as was outlined in a book called Last Call of trying to get uh, single-issue organizations, trying to get folks to vote on just that issue, regardless of anything else. And the question is, how many voters will will move from the R category to the D category? I suspect not too many, uh, as shown by the polls that uh, that you and Patricia pointed out. Uh, the governor, you know, signed this bill three years ago, and he's still up by uh, by significant percentages. In fact, over by over fifty percent in some polls. The, the third point I want to raise, and I think perhaps to move sort of expand beyond just the abortion issue, I, I think it's good for democracy anytime that I see political parties reaching into uh, areas where uh, they may not otherwise be uh, fertile ground mm-hmm. and trying to attract voters into their category. I, I think it's always bad when uh, any political party. Uh, starts taking one group or another for granted. Uh, I think it's good that the Democrats are reaching into our areas on this issue. I think it's good that Republicans are reaching into African-American, Hispanic uh, communities uh, when it comes to education issues, for instance, or economic issues. Uh, I think it's dangerous any time that in a democracy when one party or the other simply assumes that a voter will always vote with them. So I think it's a good trend, and quite frankly, it bucks a more dangerous trend that we've been seeing by some people in both parties that seek not only to demonize their opponent, but to start to demonize the supporters of their opponent. And so anything that that shows people uh, of parties reaching into the other side, uh, traditional base, I think is a good thing. Kurt? Yeah, Bill, I I agree with the sentiment 
of the panel, I don't see, uh, of course, we've been discussing how evenly split it seems the state is um, this, the, these days in terms of these uh, statewide elections. And I, don't, I agree, I don't see a lot of shifting of votes from one party to the next. Of course, in that kind of situation, it is the party that will not only achieve the highest level of turnout, but as we're seeing now, perhaps introduce new voters to the uh, uh, to the um, uh, to the process, right? And so we are uh, recognizing that uh, I think U.S. News and World Report uh, I think uh, identified six out of ten um, voters who are requesting uh, ballots uh, um, for um, um, early early ballots are women, all right? And then we're seeing that they're newly registered women on the Democratic side, right? Also, the Democratic Party uh, would argue that the that the the excitement in terms of registering new women voters are on their are, are on their side. Now, a few years ago, we saw after I want to say 2017, after uh, Trump's first election, what well, Trump's election, uh, we had a, a major protest, a major protest throughout the country of women being mobilized, right? And there's an argument that connected that major protest to what occurred in 20, uh, 2020. Um, now, I'm not quite sure that, that that's the case, but I think that there's evidence to suggest that if those who want to make that argument can point to a direct line between that excitement that occurred in 20, 2017 all the way to 2020. The question is, can we see this abortion issue in that same kind of vein and having uh, the impact on what would normally be a, uh, you know, history is on the side of the party that's out of the White House, uh, to gain seats in the midterms, uh, there's talk of a pink wave now, right? Um, that associates itself with this with this abortion issue. Uh, so uh, I, I think, as Patricia said, we have to see. But I think that there are signals here that uh, we have to decipher in terms of those who are new voters and voting in different ways in this new election. Uh, Patricia, um, I do want to point out, of course, what what Kurt's talking about is the Women's March, which drew an enormous an enormous uh, crowd of women uh, to the uh, to Washington to protest against Donald Trump's election and to talk about their issues. Um, go ahead and weigh in, but I do want to point out that I think what's interesting is in the, the lead of your uh, column sort of points to what we've talked about, what Curtis just talked about. You said that um, that that Cleveland, Georgia. Uh, White County went 83% for uh, Donald Trump in 2020. And you said it's the last place, Cleveland, where you'd expect to see a Democratic meeting draw a room full of potential voters at noon on a Tuesday. And yet it was crowded. I think Melita Easter's uh, Georgia win list was uh, up there as well, right? So talk a little bit about uh, what that says to you about an energy that might be developing. Yeah, well, I also, um, along with the size of the group that was there in this, you know, very small town, um, I was really interested in the way that they are framing the abortion issue up there. It is not being soft-pedaled. I mean, this was a very frank conversation about abortion, rape, incest. Um, should men be penalized also for their role in unwanted pregnancies? Um, and uh, there were signs on the wall that said, I'm not overreacting. Um, see you in November. You know, these are people who were really yeah. pushing this issue hard. They were not kind of tailoring it to make it more neutral or less of a hot button issue, even though it's a very Republican county. And um, June Chris, who's the candidate there, uh, spoke just in an extremely emotional way. She's a nurse 
and um, said that the, there are cases that come through the ER um, for doctors and nurses that are just so unspeakable. They're not spoken of, uh, but these are people's real experiences in terms of uh, knowing somebody who was raped or knowing somebody who had an abortion or somebody who had an abortion themselves for women um, that they don't talk about. And so they say they believe this really is somewhat of a sleeper issue in a way, even though it's getting lots of headlines, it's not the type of thing that's really discussed openly among voters and even even between couples. And so um, they really think that women are going to get into the voting booth and make a decision that people don't necessarily expect. Um, Sonia, uh, let me add an, an element to our this conversation. Uh, uh, in the past week, uh, Stacey Abrams in a, gr- in a group of women made the observation that what what Republicans call a fetal heartbeat, which is what that six-week uh, law is based on, the, the detection of a fetal heartbeat, is not, in fact, a heartbeat. It is a sound generated, I think I've got this right, by uh, the ultrasound equipment. Uh, it is not really uh, the heartbeat. Now, I get that there are Democrats who, and, and I think I think doctors suggest that absolutely is correct. And I get that that's a good rallying cry for Democrats, but it's also something Republicans, there's already some tweets going out about it, suggesting that Stacey Abrams is uh, insensitive, doesn't understand uh, that these really are living babies. Um, what about that statement? I I mean, I I think because we are in such a hyper-partisan environment, whatever anybody says gets taken and run away with uh, on the other other side, both sides, right? Um, I mean, ultimately, what we could be having is a conversation around viability, but that's not the conversation that we're having. Instead, we're kind of um, arguing about, you know, heartbeat versus not heartbeat. And I, and I think that mm-hmm. because we're also in this moment where science isn't necessarily defining the actual conversation that's, ha- that's being had, um, it, it doesn't end up doing any good. Um, Stacey Abrams could be technically correct, but it won't matter. And so what is the conversation that we really should be having around this issue that, that um, people left, right, or uh, undecided can actually understand and, and help inform them around how they actually want to feel about this issue. And again, there may be very few people at this point who haven't already made their own clear-cut decision on where they land on this issue, um, but it ends up being a little bit of noise and doesn't actually get to really what is the root of that conversation it's not really about the heartbeat. It really is a conversation about viability. And if we can talk about it that way, it might it might actually inform people differently. Let me, while the ball's in your court, let me ask you this question, Sonia. Um, let's bring it to down-ballot races. Uh, to what extent is abortion playing uh, a, a role in legislative uh, races, to the best of your understanding right now? Right. I mean, certainly, I think that one of the things that uh, is happening in the state legislature, particularly for Democrats who believe abortion is an animating issue, is is a conversation around the makeup of our state legislatures. Because 
um, the Dobbs decision effectively said we're taking it back to the state level. It's a great opportunity to really talk about the influence that our state legislatures have on laws. Governor Kemp signed a law um, back in 2019 because it was passed through the General Assembly. And so the makeup of your General Assembly is going to determine a lot the kinds of uh, bills that actually do make it all the way through to the governor's desk. Kurt and you know, then Edward. You know, Bill, when, I, when I'm listening to this, these, these various uh, um, um, campaign ads, well, I'm hearing two things. On the one hand, I'm hearing, and I think Sonia is exactly right, I'm hearing that the Republican Party of the state of Georgia, at least in the context of his campaigns, made a decision that regardless of anything that Stacey Abrams says, it will figure out a way to politicize it. Now, I don't know that that's any different from what we've seen in the past, but it seems that there is really no serious conversation or weight given to the accuracy or the substance of the comment. Whatever the statement is or whatever statements exist, they'll be taken in such a, in such a way that can help mobilize uh, uh, the electorate. Uh, which is what's interesting is that I'm not sure that it really needs to, that the electorate needs to be mobilized in that in that way. On the other side, what I'm hearing from uh, 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 the Democratic Party and this campaign uh, operations in general, and certainly in the Abrams uh, camp, is to attach this abortion issue to the extreme right uh, claim. Uh, you see it or you hear it in the first few words of that ad uh, that Abram, uh, Abrams uh, launched that, that uh, cast the, um, uh, uh, the governor as being far right. right? Now, what, where that can be uh, a factor is in the, the extent to which national politics corroborate the claims that are being made at the state level, particularly in the state of Georgia. Uh, we saw over the weekend this recent, uh, um, uh, I guess it was a mistake by uh, uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, to release this commitment on America, commitment with America, uh, I can't remember the exact, exact language, uh, taking us back to the contract with the contract with America days in, 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 uh, uh, a few decades ago. Um, uh, and then also recent Senator Lindsey Graham's claim uh, or, or contribution to a national discussion of, of, of establishing a federal ban on abortion. And so these, 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 these dynamics, I think, contribute in a way that will uh, expand this abortion discussion in ways that we perhaps haven't seen in the past. Edward? You know, abortion is, is, is one of these issues that, uh, that does tend to polarize. I remember when I first ran for office, uh, a friend of mine who was getting me prepared to run asked for my opinion on abortion. And I went on for about two to three minutes and he said, now you just stop there. Okay. State your opinion in about 15 seconds and then move on because you're not going to change anybody's opinion. <laughs> All you're going to do <laughs> is irritate somebody when you start going on for a few minutes, which is great political advice. It's lousy policy advice. It gets back to what Sonia was talking about a moment ago in which we do need to have a serious discussion uh, between people because most Americans actually uh, understand a woman's uh, right to privacy, a woman's a right to choose at some point during the, the pregnancy, but also at some point believe that the innocent life needs to be protected too. And that's why somewhere between the two polar opposites along the spectrum. And and that's where most Americans are based on the polls that I've seen. Uh, but but uh, the parties during a political race can't can't do anything. Can I and I need to add one other thing. What what's dangerous about 
Stacy's comment wasn't her question as to the science. What was dangerous about it was what she added on to it, in which she basically demonized not just uh, the issue, uh, her, the position, but also the people who were supporting it uh, by, by basically saying that it's simply an attempt by men to uh, subjugate women uh, and their bodies. That's dangerous uh, when you start uh, basically stigmatizing an entire sincere group of people who are pro-life, which includes, quite frankly, tens of thousands of women in this state. So, you know, you got to be dangerous. you got to be careful about that sort of thing. And, and I would caution um, both parties from, from ever doing such a thing. Right. I, I really appreciate this conversation, and I want to get to a break and move on. But, Patricia, bef- real quick before we do, I, what, what Edward just said about, you know, the political way of dealing with this is do it in 15 words, good politics, bad policy. Interestingly enough, I, I thought in your column, Stan Gunter's comments about abortion are an example of thinking, uh, being thoughtful about this subject, not just giving the uh, standard Republican pro-life line. He kind of acknowledged to you that he wrestles with this issue. He did. Um, he, but he also said nobody has ever asked him how he would have voted for that bill. Um, he is a first-term lawmaker elected in 2020, so after uh, the heartbeat bill was passed. And I, I said, well, how, do you, how would you have voted on that? He said, you know, I, nobody's ever asked me that. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that comes as a huge surprise <laughs> to me. But he said, the, and he said, you know, I do have some real concerns about that bill. Um, I thought he meant that he... I don't know why I thought this. I thought he meant that he had gone a little, that the bill had gone too far. And he said, when it comes to rape and incest, I struggle with that. I really believe that that is a life. And I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with those exceptions in the bill. Ah, oh, mm-hmm. okay. So he was talking, okay, thank you for clarifying that. I thought he was talking about the issue in a larger sense. Thank you for that. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break in the show. We'll be back with more uh, after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Edward Lindsay, State Senator Sonia Halpern, Kurt Young from Clark Atlanta University, and Patricia Murphy joined me for today's Political Rewind. Uh, Patricia, looking at the AJC poll last week, uh, we saw a Senate race which is a razor-thin margin, but in which the libertarian Chase Oliver uh, may be drawing just enough votes that neither Walker or Warnock are able to get over 50% on November 8th. Which means what, Patricia? <laughs> that means a runoff. Another, Another runoff. runoff. <laughs> we call it the R word in the AJC newsroom because last year's nine-week Senate runoff campaign just about killed everybody who ever worked for the AJC. So we like not to think about these things. But um, that Warnock-Walker race is, as you said, neck and neck. Um, however, with a meaningful uh, number of uh, 
potentially Republicans, we're not exactly sure who, um, but supporting Chase Oliver. Oliver ran for the fifth district seat um, when after John Lewis died. So he's a known quantity. He's also very well known among libertarians because he had he's had the uh, Atlanta chapter of libertarians for some time. And so he's got a good bit of name ID among libertarians. Um, if he draws that support away, and we do know that there are Republicans, um, you know, a few Republicans still uncomfortable with Herschel Walker. Um, at the same time, Raphael Warnock has never gotten um, close to cl- clearing 50% in these polls. Um, although, uh, you know, obviously he uh, was able to win that Senate seat over an incumbent the last time around. So he's well positioned, but not clear, not clearing 50% the way that he would like to be right now to be comfortable that he's going to be able to avoid a runoff in this, in this race. Yeah. 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 Edward, if you're an incumbent, you really would like to see your number up at 50% or higher uh, at this stage of the race. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a scary situation uh, for an incumbent if you're thrown into a runoff. Uh, you know, that's what happened back in 1992 uh, here in Georgia when uh, when there was a runoff and uh, and Paul Coverdale, the challenger, was able to win. That's what happened just two years ago uh, when uh, Senator Perdue was thrown into a runoff and got beat in a runoff. So no, no incumbent wants to be thrown into a runoff. But let me for your listeners, uh, let me also give you the good news about a runoff. It will we will not interfere with your watching Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, because uh, the uh, runoff season has now been shortened to, I believe, the first Tuesday after Thanksgiving. Uh, yeah, which four, weeks. four weeks. Which means that it will interfere with your watching uh, the, the parades on Thanksgiving Day, but won't uh, won't reach into the Christmas season. Um and you know we'll just have to see. And and but you can't help but feel that that there there is within a, at least a small percentage of, of more Republican leaning voters uh, still some uncertainty about Walker because Libertarian doesn't seem to have any real significant impact in the governor's race. I think he's down around uh, Patricia. I think according to your poll, somewhere hovering around one percent. Uh, but uh, the Libertarian in this. And the Senate race has three or four percentage points, which would almost definitely throw it into a runoff. But, you know, I will also say this. Walker's had everything thrown at him uh, that you could possibly imagine. And yet he's still either tied slightly up or slightly down, depending on which poll you want to see. So it's, it's going to be an interesting season over the next four weeks. You know, Sonia, I think that's a really uh, important point that Edward makes that, uh, that you know, the Warnock campaign, PAC supporting Warnock, have poured millions and millions of dollars into ads attacking Walker, a lot of it on his history of violence uh, toward women, his ex-wife, with that very dramatic uh, series of ads in which he talks about him holding a gun to her head. And yet, and yet, if anything, Walker has improved in his standing in the polls in uh, in the past weeks, especially since he changed out his campaign team and now has a much more uh, disciplined and professional uh, group running the campaign. Yeah, I, I, this race for me more than any of the others is it's it's, it's a fascinating study um, because you do you've got two candidates. Uh, both happen to be African American men. Um, one's clearly an incumbent, 
and has a long history of public service. The other does not. And yet the polls are showing them neck and neck. I think what it says to me and to many of us, right, is that really people are not necessarily looking at the individuals. They're not necessarily um, rallying around policy, but they are looking at party as one of the most defining factors in their vote and who will get their vote. Because, um, I mean, I don't know. Somebody else would have to explain to me why a Herschel Walker has um, is neck and neck with a Raphael Warnock. And again, I'm not even saying that you have to like all of Raphael Warnock's policies, but in terms of the kind of person that you might want to represent you, um, it, it's a striking difference, and yet the polls show them tied with the possibility of a runoff. Yeah, I think, uh, Kurt, I want you to jump in here, but Sonia talks basically about tribalism. Uh, of course, he's a superstar football uh, a legend, uh, which has some impact, but tribalism is playing apparently a role in many races across the country. So let's think about it. We've said time and time again that, that, that all politics are local, but at the same time, local politics exists within the context of national politics. And this election is not going to be any different. Part of the reason that you have this, quote, tribalism that's occurring is because it's part of the national political dialogue. We have a president just recently who said that, all, that, that uh, if he murdered someone on Fifth Avenue or somewhere, something like that, that he, it wouldn't matter. He will still be elected. I'm paraphrasing, of course. We, we, heard, we heard an all-out assault, rightly so, on his misogynistic behavior and self-proclaimed grabbing of women in certain kind of ways. Uh, we heard all other kind of discussions. We mentioned a moment ago the uh, women protests that seek, sought to expose some of these contradictions, and we said something about its impact in 2020. Uh, we saw, despite the fact that Trump lost, we saw that he had a tremendous amount of support uh, in many red states that would defy any candidate being exposed to those types of, uh, of behaviors. So I don't know why we should expect anything different in the state of Georgia. There are, there's an electorate here in the state and in other red states. So I, I think Georgia may not necessarily be defined as a red state, but nonetheless, other states who will vote for the Republican candidate, who will vote for the Democratic candidate. And they'll do so regardless of these, these, these behavioral aspects or, uh, 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 or, or, or or, or other imperfections that we see among the candidates. But I think that there's something else to consider, though, uh, especially in light of the conversation about Oliver, the Oliver uh, possibility of throwing this into, into a runoff. And I think that's a highly likely. Um, it de depending on, I'm, I'm wondering now, I don't know if I have enough to make, to make this point solidly, but de depending on what happens in this, uh, um, this first uh, head up, uh, debate between uh, uh, Warnock and Walker. I think that may uh, expose uh, some problems. I'm going to go out on the limb and say that I think, it, I, I think Warnock will outperform uh, Walker in that. Uh, I could be wrong, but that's my belief that he'll outperform Walker, Walker in that debate. But then what will occur is that it will have to depend upon, success will have to depend upon turnout for the runoff elections. Right, which is always a problem, uh, always a problem going forward uh, uh, in these elections. So I just want to make those points good. No, thank you. Uh, Patricia, jump back in. Yeah, 
I think if tribalism were playing the only role here, Herschel Walker would be winning. Um, he would be up with Brian Kemp and up over 50% if it was Republicans just voting for Republicans. Um, there are some Republicans right now who are not comfortable with Herschel Walker and they cannot get there with Herschel Walker yet. Um, and there are a, an important number of Brian Kemp voters who are voting for Raphael Warnock right now um, in our polling. And so I think as we get closer, and especially if it goes to runoff, and especially if we have a replay of Senate control coming down to this race in Georgia, that's when tribalism will just blow everything else out of the water. We'll know who is in control of the House. We'll know that it's uh, uh, President Biden in the White House. And whoever wins that Senate race will determine the future of the Biden agenda and also um, how it will set up for uh, Donald Trump going forward if he wanted to come in and run for president. Um, but right now, there are, I think, a few other issues scrambling this race a little bit. Otherwise, um, Walker would be running as well as Governor Kemp is. Oh, that's a, thank you. That's a really interesting point. Edward? If I can uh, sort of uh, go back to the point Kurt was raising a moment ago about the debate, because I, I think that actually the debate it may may offer some more danger to Warnock uh, than some folks perceive, because the Democrats have uh, so far worked very hard to demonize uh, Herschel Walker uh, through the various uh, uh, ads and and other uh, activities, to the point that that if Walker walks out there and comes across as a as a nice guy. Uh, as somebody that you could be comfortable with, uh, as comes across as someone who does understand certain basic issues. His expectations, quite frankly, are so low right now uh, going into the debate, given, given how, how effectively, I, I would say, the Democrats have, have run a campaign to demonize him. I think he can't help but win. Uh, not it's not a matter of scoring points, who, you know, who, who does pointedly better in a debate than everyone else. But the expectation level is going to be so high for Warnock and the expectation level for many people is going to be so low for Walker that I think Walker uh, will will probably end up uh, enhancing his position simply by coming out there and looking like a nice guy that you could be comfortable with. And but we'll have to see about that. Uh, but also, you know, the bottom line, whether you call it tribalism or, or anything else, the fact of the matter is in a 51-49 Senate, uh, the Senate balance does rest here in Georgia on, in many respects, on this race. And so I think a lot of folks are likely to come home to their respective base uh, and vote on who they want to be controlling the U.S. Senate over the next two years. Sonia? Yeah, one quick point, just to underscore something that Ed just said. Um, like the, I think it was just last week, Herschel Walker came out and said, uh, you know, I'm just not that smart. And and Raphael Warnock, he's going to embarrass me and just try to make me look stupid and dumb in the debate. So uh, when we talk about his campaign team changing um, and the sophistication of his campaign increasing, I think that's an example of that, right? Because he really has lowered the expectation right there based on that statement alone. And so it may mean then that a Raphael Warnock has to approach this debate in a slightly different way than he might otherwise, because it's true, the, the who won and who didn't win, it's now the, the factors and the, the grading on that has changed 
just because of the expectation level that a Herschel Walker is now set. Yeah, I think, Patricia, Democrats, uh, the Walker campaign may have overplayed their hand just a little bit in this ongoing drumbeat of challenging Herschel Walker to debate. Why is he afraid uh, to debate? Uh, now he is. Be careful what you wish for. As uh, Edward Lindsay points out, uh, there are some ways in which the expectations are so low. We've seen Herschel Walker with this ability to feel like just an ordinary an ordinary fella who, you know, he's just trying to, to uh, uh, bring country values to the way he approaches. I mean, there are things about that that are very appealing uh, that Edward points out might be a winning approach to a debate. Yeah, Herschel Walker, especially in a smaller setting, is, is just extremely charming. His Very few people watch Herschel Walker at an in-person event and leave saying, wow, I can't stand that guy. You know, that's just not really the effect that he has on people. He's a celebrity, he's very well liked, um, and he has a very um, humble demeanor and says frequently, I don't know all the answers. I'm going to ask a question. It's going to sound really stupid, but I hope that you'll just bear with me. Um, however, I think when he gets too comfortable, he goes way off down a tangent that is hideously dangerous. That that uh, This is why his consultants were wary of him debating in the beginning. And as much as Raphael Warnock was saying, you know, come on, don't be afraid to debate me, Herschel Walker was saying, name the place, name the time, and his quote was, and we'll get it on. You know, so it was getting between yeah. these two men like some sort of like WWE cage match. Um, I think they're obviously trying to lower expectations, but listen, there is a, there is a an expectation below which Herschel Walker can certainly fall in a public setting, <laughs> a live debate. He's never done a debate. He never did debate his GOP contenders. And so I think the risks, despite the low expectations, the risks for Walker are very real. Kurt, I got to get to a break. So just a quick comment, please. Just, just really quickly, I think I'm hearing something different in the circles that I, I'm in about uh, uh, Walker. Uh, I don't, I don't know that I'm hearing uh, um, this notion that he, uh, you know, his expectations are low, which they are, but that he can, he can still win. I think there's a, there's a serious concern about uh, how he would communicate very, very serious issues. And I think one important item to look at is uh, the Warnock uh, uh, campaign's insistence, and I don't remember the, the most recent state of this discussion, but the Warnock campaign's insistence that he not receive, Walker not receive uh, uh, questions prior to the discussion and, 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 and what have you. And so part of that is to, is to determine, to make sure that he performs a certain kind of way. All right, I got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a minute. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Uh, just for a moment, I want to make one more observation about this talk about uh, the possibility of a Walker-Warnock runoff. Ed Edward Lindsay, you pointed out the history of runoff elections in Georgia, just mentioned a number of the years when we had them. M my example of just how high the stakes are, how treacherous runoffs can be, is going all the way back to 1992, Edward, when uh, Paul Coverdale got himself into the Republican was in a runoff with incumbent Senator Weich Fowler. That year, Bill Clinton had won Georgia um, on the way to uh, winning the White House, and the president-elect came to Macon 
staged a rally for White Fowler, uh, got a big turnout, and yet, and yet, Edward, Paul Coverdale ended up winning that election. Not even the president-elect of the United States, who won Georgia, could put Fowler over the top. That's how treacherous runoffs can be. Exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's move on. Patricia, um, uh, your colleague Mark Nisi is going to be on with us tomorrow. And, and one of the things we're going to do is talk a bit, as he, he's been covering Coffee County pretty closely, and we'll talk about it in much greater depth on the show tomorrow. But there's been a development that's an important uh, uh, one to talk about today. And that's uh, the Secretary of State's office has now said they are going to have all new uh, election machinery sent down to Coffee County. The data breach down there, they say, did not jeopardize uh, the system in any way that, that, that the election machines are still secure. But if for no other reason than to avoid... Uh, the appearance that there could be problems, they're moving forward with that. The point of all this is to say Coffee County has become a huge and important story as part of this ongoing narrative that uh, the Trump allies have continued to put forward that the 2020 election was stolen. Uh, yes, and um, uh, Trump supporters went down to Coffee County and uh, did infiltrate those systems, just as Trump supporters accused others of doing, accused Democrats of doing, which is not at all what happened. Um, but I think that they have to replace those machines just out of just to convince people that there is no residual um, damage to those machines. If anything ever happened down there in the future, people could just point straight back to this and say, well, why in the world wouldn't you have just replaced those machines? Um, but I'm sure Ed Lindsay has some uh, kind of a unique perspective on this as a member of the state elections board. I, that's Edward Lindsay. That's right. Wanted to bring you in sure. because you, you were appointed uh, earlier this year to be a member of the state election board. Give us your take on all this. Well, uh, two things. Number one, uh, Patricia's absolutely right. Uh, the perception issue, I think, was something that the Secretary of State's office had to deal with here because it's not only important that we have an accurate election, but that uh, the, the people of Georgia have confidence in the election and whatever it takes. Let me also say that for, for our listeners, uh, the State Election Board is holding a hearing on Wednesday, uh, as a matter of fact, to go over the security matter, uh, matters and, and sort of outline what is being done to make sure that our elections are uh, secure and accurate. And so uh, please, uh, I would ask folks to please uh, tune in on that. Uh, we are certainly hopeful that uh, folks will come away with a, a greater confidence in the outcome because the most what we really want folks to do is we want folks to show up and vote and have confidence in the outcome, particularly if your side loses. I mean, that's a cornerstone of democracy is that the, the side that comes in second uh, has uh, confidence in the outcome, and that's what we're going to be working towards. Uh, regarding Coffee County, uh, you know, there's an ongoing criminal investigation uh, that sure. was launched at the request of the state election board um, because we, we take this matter very seriously. And uh, as a matter of fact, I actually even got deposed on this issue by one of these multiple lawsuits about two weeks ago. And someone said, well, how are we going to keep this sort of thing from Coffee County happening again? And my response is, well, a few people uh, wearing orange jumpsuits picking up trash on the side of the road uh, <laughs> can go a long way toward deterrence. And I'm certainly hopeful that, that we will uh, have some pretty strong responses to what has taken place. But anyway, the bottom line is that uh, we are working hard. To, and it's a bipartisan board uh, to have folks have confidence in the outcome. 
uh, what the Secretary of State's office has done is, is a good step. There's all the things that need to be done as well. But uh, stay tuned in terms of what we uh, what we talk about on Wednesday on the State Election Board. Sonia, I, I mean, I'd like to, uh, uh, I, I hope Edward Lindsay is right, that the state board somehow can uh, create a, a, a an atmosphere in the state where people have trust and faith in the outcome of an election. But unfortunately, I think that's a very high bar these days. It, it is, but it, it, I think that it's something, though, that everybody actually wants us to have. Um, and and I think that you see that also when in the AJC poll, we talked about the abortion issue and where it fell in that poll. But threats to democracy actually was quite high on that poll as well after, of course, jobs and uh, inflation and that kind of stuff. But threats to democracy is something that I think across the board, uh, Georgians are really you know, concerned about. And the integrity of our elections absolutely is something that you know, the state election board and the secretary of state need to and are taking seriously. And so that's a really good, strong right step in the direction of at least giving us more confidence that the people who are charged with overseeing our elections are doing so in a in a very um, ob- uh, objective way and manner towards the good for our state. Uh, Patricia, I don't remember the uh, way in which that question was asked specifically. Um, But in a lot of the polls that we're seeing, threats to democracy has risen high up as an issue people care about. The problem in some of the polls is that Republicans and Democrats have a very different idea about what is threatening our democracy. And I'm not quite sure how the as I I don't recall how the AJC addressed that. Yes, we asked uh, specifically what do you see as uh, the greatest, um, the most important issue facing the country is how it was worded. And threats to democracy was one of those. And it, um, to um, Senator Halpern's point, pulled way above abortion, actually. Abortion was at 5% and threats to democracy was at 19%. And that was just behind jobs and jobs in the economy, which was in the 20s. Um, and, but you're exactly right. Democrats and Republicans have different opinions of that, although they, it's sort of like two sides of the same coin. Um, uh, same thing with election security, who, you know, who's trying to steal the election. Well, it's a very different story once you look under the hood. Um, but uh, it was uh, mostly Democrats uh, pointing to that. It's also being asked in the same context of uh, Fannie Willis's ongoing investigation into Donald Trump um, for election interference in 2020. I am completely out of time uh, for today's show. I'd really love to have more of an opportunity to uh, listen to this panel talk about the issues today, but I sure appreciate uh, the conversation. Kurt Young, Edward Lindsay, Senator Sonia Halpern, Patricia Murphy, thank you so much for getting the week off to such a good start uh, today. A quick reminder before we leave you, Wednesdays uh, is the day that we put out our Political Rewind newsletter. If you're not a subscriber, it's easy to become one. Just go to uh, gpb.org newsletters and uh, we'll send it to your inbox every Wednesday afternoon. That's it for us for today. We're out of time, but we are back with a brand new show uh, tomorrow. Again, my thanks to the panel and to all of you out there listening to the show. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care and please stay healthy. Bye, everybody.